Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Mike Massimino, former NASA astronaut, author, and TV personality. Today, we'll be exploring the vital role of data throughout Mike's career at NASA and considering the importance of determination, patience, and innovation thinking from high-pressure environments of space expeditions and maybe from your world as well as a whole. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Mike. Thanks for having me, Joe. My pleasure to be here. So you have a very interesting origin story. There's a there's a story that you tell about being a child watching the moon landing and saying, someday, that's going to be me. Uh, but it wasn't a really easy, simple journey for you to get to your uh, to your first rocket, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. And I don't know if I really said that someday that's going to be me. I think knowing my personality was more like someday. I hope that will, that will be me. Um, and I, uh, I, I dreamt about it, as you said, I was six years old when uh, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and that really captured my uh, my heart and soul. I knew it meant more to me than it did just about anybody else. It really did uh, capture me and never let go uh, of of my uh, of what I was interested in. But I never thought it would be possible, Joe. I, I I thought that becoming an astronaut was as I got older was something that wasn't uh, wasn't was not for me. I I didn't like heights. I still don't like heights. I was not much of a thrill seeker kind of kid. I didn't think I could ever become a test pilot. I never did as a, as a result. The way the astronauts back then, they were all these, these, uh, fearless, uh, test pilots like Neil Armstrong. And I didn't see that happening. Plus the whole idea just seemed crazy as I got older that how do you ever become something like that? So I kind of gave up on it. And it wasn't until after I got out of college. I was an engineer, and uh, I went through uh, went through uh, college to study engineering, and was working as an engineer. And then I decided that I needed to do something about this little boy dream. It wasn't going to go away. It had been with me my whole life, and uh, I needed to at least try to become an astronaut. And if I couldn't do that, get involved with the space program and, and direct my career toward what I thought was was important to me. But you are an astronaut now, or at least you were. So, how many flights did you do, and how many trips, and what's the most interesting thing you saw up there? Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, well, kind of once an astronaut, always an astronaut. I'm no longer a NASA astronaut, uh, but I did get to fly a couple times and uh, flew twice on the on the space shuttle to the Hubble Space Telescope. And as far as the most interesting thing I saw, it, it, the whole experience is just uh, it's just surreal. It, it really is um, from start to finish. The experience, the, the training, everything. I, the uh, when when I when I arrived at NASA, I realized that uh, in one week I was getting enough memories that would fill m- like years of any other job I had. It was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, the people I got to work with, the things I got to experience, the people I met, um, and the adventures that we went on, even in our training as brand new astronauts, was just uh, was just incredible to me. And once you get to space, it's uh, it's it's just an, another one of these uh, unbelievable experiences that uh, uh, are so unique. I, I think it's the coolest thing people can do. But out of all of it, I would say the 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 most extraordinary thing I've gotten to do was spacewalk uh, at the Hubble Space Telescope, where we're about a hundred miles higher than space station, so we can see the curve of the planet from up there, um, and it's just glorious. And it's it's kind of this mix of doing your job, of concentrating on 
on what you're doing. You're getting to do what you think is uh, really important. It was a, I felt a lot of responsibility given to us, and we didn't want to mess it up. So we worked really hard to be ready. And during the spacewalks, we did the best we could to take care of each other and get the job done and concentrate on our job. But as, when you're out there, just any any moment you can steal a look of the planet or the stars or just the environment around you is <laughs> just amazing. And uh, I, I would say probably the most, just the overall, the most extraordinary thing I see is our was our planet. Um, we could see the curve of the planet. We could see the, the the thinness of the atmosphere, and just its beauty. And and I I felt that I was looking into heaven. I felt like I was looking into an absolute paradise, looking at our planet from space. Remarkable. So in this podcast, we talk a lot about decision making and analytics. And, you know, one of the things that'd be interesting for listeners to hear is you were under some pretty high pressure situations and you're trying to deal with um, maybe some information, maybe probably computer systems that weren't nearly what they are right now. Uh, how did you go about making decisions and and what information did you have at your disposal and how did you go about doing that under a high pressure environment? Yeah, with uh, a good point. You know, this the the shuttle. We just recently had a, a SpaceX launch with this 21st century spaceship. A lot of automatic systems and touch screens, and a lot of stuff just goes automatically for you. And uh, and and the shuttle. It, it was 10 years since we have launched a shuttle. Nearly, it really was 40 years since we had a new spaceship. Is is really more accurate? We hadn't launched a new spaceship in 40 years. So we're going back to 1981 when we launched a space shuttle for the first time, and that was built in the 70s so we had all the computing power that was available in the 1970s and it really didn't change much it really took four crew members and an entire uh, mission control center with a team in the front room and backup people and all kinds of things all kinds of people all kinds of checklists to, to go through and it was very manually intensive such that uh, the commander and pilot were looking at things two mission specialists as flight engineers were behind them helping and when we would get a warning or a signature, we would call it, we had to try to figure out what it was, uh, what the problem was. And it wasn't, it was sometimes very cryptic, uh, but there was not a lot of computing power. It could tell you, the, the machine, the shuttle could tell you what was wrong, but then it was up to you to figure it out. And the folks on the ground, we were so dependent on the ground because they were able to get a lot more data than we could get in the cabin. Over the years, they, they were able to get more telemetry down to the ground. And they had lots of people to look at lots of screens to interpret that data. So they had a whole, we had a whole standing army of people to help us with that. So it was a lot of people looking at lots of data, trying to figure out what, what was going on. The space station now is, was, was even, was highly automated with laptop computers. And now we have the SpaceX vehicle, which is really highly automated. So things have really changed over the decades. It's really remarkable to think that, that uh, there's more computing power on your laptop than there was on the space shuttle. Get more information. Oh, by far. From... <laughs> <laughs> by, by a long shot. Yeah. But you know, that's the way it was. Uh, and I also, uh, I can only picture you, you get more information looking out the window than you do in looking at the tele telemetry on your computer screen. <laughs> well, you are a little bit uh, at the at the avant-garde part of technology as the first person to actually have a tweet in space. Uh, you want to tell our listeners what that tweet said and kind of any genesis of that story? How did how did that tweet come to be? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is back uh, for my second space flight, which happened in May of 09. And um, when you're getting ready for a space flight, you kind of not really paying attention to very much else going on in the world. Uh, and and for, I think that's pretty typical. And certainly that's the way it was for me. And I kind of 
remember hearing about Twitter starting uh, sometime like before then in 08, I guess I heard about it. I remember uh, President Obama um, tweeting during his inauguration in January, you know, getting close to where we were going to fly. And I heard about that. I thought that's kind of interesting. And then uh, NASA came to me. I, so a lot of things that happen in life, Joe, I think are just kind of uh, serendipity or just, just saying yes to things. You know, people will ask you to do something and, and you say yes. And sometimes things will happen that you can never mm-hmm. even imagine. Um, <laughs> and th- this is what happened is uh, the NASA Public Affairs Office uh, came to me. Actually, came to my commander first and asked him if he was okay with it. Timing-wise, our flight being in May of '09. Uh, they wanted to get NASA involved with social media, and they wanted uh, an astronaut to tweet from space. You know, 140 characters. I actually tried. I actually tried writing a blog. It didn't go very well. It was just too much for me. It was too much work. You know, it was more than 140 characters. But 140 characters, sending something out every once in a while about what we were doing, that was easy. So, but the, what happened, Joe, is that um, when I first met Neil Armstrong. Back in when I was a new astronaut, the first time I met him was right after I became an astronaut. And the question I asked him was, when did you come up with what you said on the moon? You know, this one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I asked him that. I go, you, how'd you come up with that? Did your wife tell you to say that? Did you hire a publicist? It's pretty good. He goes, mm-hmm. and he looks at me and he said, Mike, no. He said, uh, I didn't think about it until after I landed on the moon. And I go, really? And he said, Mike, if I didn't <laughs> land on the moon, there'd be no, no reason to say anything. Because you got to concentrate on the mission first. And he was very serious. He looked at me, Mike, you're new at this. But you've got to concentrate on taking care of the spaceflight mission first and worry about all that other stuff later. Fair enough. So I was like, I got it. And uh, years later, I get asked to send the first tweet, and the press has asked me what I'm going to tweet. I said, look, Neil Armstrong said, don't worry about it until I get there. And that's what I did. And when I got there and I opened up the computer and I'm floating around, I realized that was like the worst advice I ever got in my life, Jim. <laughs> I had no idea what to write. And I, I wrote, the uh, launch was awesome and some other stuff. Uh, and there, I'm feeling great. or something. And they made fun of me on Saturday Night Live. They said... <laughs> In 40 years, we've gone from one small, one giant leap for mankind to launch was awesome. So, uh, yeah. Tough time so to get writer's happened. block. That's the, the story behind it. Yeah. So. so you and I shared a story of some near misses. Um, I uh, consider myself quite lucky. I held a ticket for a, one of the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center on 9-11, and it was only through one of those serendipitous moments that you referred to that I didn't get on that plane. You have a similar story about Columbia. Tell us about that story about how you wound up on a different Columbia flight. Yeah, um, we uh, when, my, when I got assigned to my first flight, I was assigned in 2002. I'm sorry, I was assigned in, two, in, the year, in 2000, in August of 2000, and we flew in March of 2002. And uh, we were assigned to fly, STS-109 was the number of our flight to fly on Space Shuttle Columbia. And uh, there was a flight that was assigned before ours by about six months or so, I think, they were assigned to fly on Columbia as well. They were going to go on Columbia before us, and that was STS-107. So 107 is going to fly, and then a few months later, 109 is going to fly on Columbia, and that was the plan. Um uh, Columbia, right before 107, uh, was uh, out in Palmdale, California. The, the space shuttle was getting a uh, an overhaul, more or less. Uh, there was upgrades and and things to check, and, and and kind of a major overhaul for the shuttles. And this was typical. Every few years, each shuttle went through that in Palmdale, and then was flown back to the Kennedy Space Center for launch. So the shuttle was flown back to be readied for the launch of STS-107. And it was something weird. I can't exactly remember what it was, but 
in the briefing, they said it was something, something to do with the paint or handrails or something that was kind of really obscure that, like, how the heck did they miss this? But something happened where they needed to redo it at the Cape. So it was going to delay the launch of both 107 and 109. And it got to the point where with with Hubble, our flight 109, um, they were concerned about us getting to Hubble. They're always nervous about the telescope because things can happen. If you wait too long and and something batteries die or something happens with the gyroscopes or something happens, you don't like it to go too long without being visited. And so it was going to get to the point where they were going to start, they meaning NASA was going to start getting nervous about that. Whereas 107 was a basic um, uh, life science flight where they're going to be doing experiments. And if that, that didn't happen right away, they were, that wasn't as much of a hit. So what they decided to do was flip the order of our flights. So 109, my flight, ended up going before 107, both of us on Columbia. But we ended up coming back, and 107 that flew after us. They're the ones that, uh, that had the accident where they took debris on the way up and didn't come back. And I didn't think about that until I think the day after the uh, accident that hit me, I woke up that next morning and that day that the accident happened was just an awful day, probably the worst day of my life that Saturday, uh, February 1st, back in 2003. And that next day I remember waking up and and that, that thought hit me that, wow, uh, they were supposed to have our spot and we were supposed to be in there. So, um, yeah, but that's that's what happened. And like you say, Joe, sometimes things you know things happen. You don't know why they're happening, and you still don't understand why they happen that way. But uh, that's what happened to me and my crew. All the data and analytics in the world doesn't stop that stuff from happening, right? No, you know, and uh, data, you know, it's interesting. There was uh, we, after that accident, we really pumped up the data uh, uh, acquisition on launch. We we they put a lot of cameras and all types of sensors and. We were able to uh, inspect the vehicle in space. It really changed the way that we were, in some ways, flying uh, flying blindly when it came to debris strikes and the effect that they would have on the space shuttle. And that ended after that accident. Uh, it really stepped up what we would, what we did for launch, how we prepared for launch, and how we uh, got all the data we needed on the vehicle, and then also collected data with some pretty fancy sensors once we got to we inspected the vehicle because what happened to 107 was is they took damage on the way up and they had a compromised uh thermal protection system and they weren't able to come home well we weren't going to let that happen again and so we really pumped up the data that we had available to us so we recorded it uh to and did analysis of it to make sure the spaceship could come back safely so that was a big change but we didn't have that capability when 107 flew and I remember you telling me in our prep for this discussion that uh, it, uh, when these accidents and mishaps happened, that everyone had a theory, but they didn't necessarily have the information to back up their their particular idea. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Joe, because everyone starts you know it, it starts guessing of what happened, and uh, you look foolish when you do that afterwards. You know, everyone has a theory, like, well, it must have been this, or it must have been that, or it could have been this. What happened? That we knew that foam came off the tank. There, that was that was something that was seen looking at the post-launch footage when they were doing the analysis, that a big piece of foam. So the tank, the external tank of the vehicle uh, had liquid hydrogen and oxygen, which has to be kept at very cold temperatures in order to work correctly, in order to power the vehicle. And so the, to keep it to be in liquid form at that cold temperature, the, the external tank was like a big thermos bottle. And it had this... A lot of foam sprayed all over it, and they found out too much after they did the analysis. They didn't need all that, especially in certain areas where it was hard to get it to stick. But they sprayed on this foam to make it like a big thermos bottle to keep the fuel cold. 
And that foam didn't adhere as well as they would have liked, particularly to some parts of the tank. And it never thought it would be a problem. If it flew off, it flew off. If it was so light, what, what could it do? So it almost didn't even have any weight. When you picked up a big chunk of this stuff, it hardly even weighed anything. But a fairly big chunk came off and hit the wing of the vehicle. And they knew that, but there was, but the still, you know, the first observation was like, there's no way that this light piece of nothing of this foam could ever take down a whole space shuttle. But after they did the analysis and they actually set up a test and took data, that's what they found. That's exactly what happened. And it found because, because the stuff was so light, it actually came off and slowed down. It was only a, you know, like a millisecond between the, the time that the stuff came off and it impacted the shuttle, but still the relative velocity because of the slowing foam and the accelerating space shuttle, it was about 800 miles an hour relative uh, velocity between the two. You hit anything going that fast, you're going to know about it. And uh, that's what happened. It ended up putting a hole in the wing, and, and uh, the wing was, was designed to take heat but not to take any kind of impact. It was pretty fragile as it turned in light and fragile could take the heat, but wasn't, wasn't designed to go through a debris field. So that's what happened. But yeah, you guess about it. And I see this even with airplane accidents or just about anything. People always, they know their system really well. So if you ask an engineer or someone that knows something about something, they'll, they know what could go wrong. They're like, well, this must have what happened because I know about that. But, but a lot of times it's, 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 it's something that you would never even imagine. Plus it's never just one thing. It's a it's a stack up of factors, and when the, in the analysis they investigate, I do a whole lecture at my class at Columbia about spaceflight accidents and how what initially happened, and then what we ended up finding out was the was the cause and what we learned from it. It's an interesting topic. So let's actually transition over to your current um, more academic life. Um, and, uh, so now you are a big advocate of STEM research. You teach engineering and at Columbia. So tell us about how that happened and, um, and about, uh, your, your passion for engineering and the, the afterlife of, uh, of an astronaut. You mentioned, you know, you never <laughs> stop being an astronaut. You just spend more yeah. time on the ground, I suppose. Yeah, no, you spent, yeah, you, you don't, uh, yeah, you don't go, you don't, don't go anywhere anymore compared <laughs> to like you used to, uh, especially now with us staying inside so much. Or staying in one place so much. Right. Um, uh, yeah, for me, Joe, uh, I, uh, I, when I uh, entered grad school at MIT to, uh, to try to pursue a career in the space program, um, I wasn't sure exactly where that was going to take me. I, ho- I hoped it would take me to the space program, and I was going to do my best to make that happen. I hope it was going to make me, you know, help me become an astronaut, but I, I knew there was no guarantee. Looking at data, that was very unlikely that that was going to happen. But... Um, but I, I found in the course of doing that that I kind of liked the academic environment. I worked as a research engineer after after graduate school um, at uh, at the Johnson Space Center, and then I kept getting rejected from being an astronaut. I was rejected three times, including a, a medical disqualification on my third try, which pretty much signaled the end once you're medically disqualified. And I, I was going to fight it. It was a problem with my eyesight. And I was going to try to see if I could do something about it. But I also knew that 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 was becoming this whole dream was becoming less and less likely, particularly after the after being disqualified. So I started thinking about, well, what what else would you want to do if this just can't happen? Uh, What else? And uh, moved to Georgia Tech and was doing that job for about two weeks when NASA said they were looking for astronauts again. I was able to get my medical disqualification overturned so I could be eligible again. And so NASA saw my application in there a fourth time and brought me in for another interview. And, uh, and then I was picked. And, when, and so I was at Georgia Tech for less than a year uh, when I returned to Houston to be an astronaut. And um, 
I, I kind of in the back of my mind thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to enjoy the most, uh, this job that I have this opportunity as an astronaut, the most that I can. But eventually I knew that I would have to figure out something else to do. Most likely, uh, your flying days do end at some point, And, uh, some people stay at NASA, some people go into industry and some go into academics. And I kept in the back of my mind that that would be something I'd want to do. And when it, when the shuttle program was ending and my, my flying days looked like uh, they were going to be over, uh, I started asking astronauts who had retired and, or at least moved on uh, to doing other things. And uh, I thought going back to academics would be a good deal. And um, uh, I mentioned that to some of my uh, people that I knew at Columbia. I kept a good relationship there, and uh, they were able to, to uh, find a spot for me. And, and that's what I ended up doing when I left NASA was joining the faculty at Columbia in the engineering school. Do people in the astronaut program have a similar background to you generally? Are they are they mathematically oriented? Do they have a lot of engineering degrees or is it diverse? What what is a typical background of your colleagues look like? It's really diverse, Joe, but all within STEM. I was an engineer. Um, I flew in space just on my couple of space flights. I flew in space with military test pilots, a navigator uh, from the military, aerospace engineers. I uh, flew in space with a physicist, an astrophysicist. But all of these occupations made these people eligible to be uh, astronauts. And that's just a few of the people that I flew with. If you look at all the hundreds of people that become astronauts, if people are interested, look at their bios. And you'll see it very varied. It becomes more and more varied as time goes on. But still, uh, it's, it's, it's centered in the STEM fields, uh, but widely within that. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about as you talk through those teammates is teamwork. You know, one of the things we've described how, you know, you're, you're looking out the window for data. You don't trust the computers. You don't have that much information. And uh, we always talk about analytics being a team sport. You know, yeah. you've got to rely on the people on your left and right. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the reliance on those people to your left and right, especially in you know, those super high pressure situations? Yeah, you really are dependent on each other to keep each other alive. And now, I mean, now it's different. Now it's become more automated, uh, but you still depend on on the folks on the ground and the uh, the people that are next to you in the cockpit uh, to help. But we do trust automation a lot more. We have a lot more data, as we said, AI, other things are helping out. So, but we still want to monitor things and be engaged. But as far as that trust, you mentioned all the things that become an astronaut, um, the uh, being able to uh, analyze data, uh, academic uh, achievement. The the thing, though, that you would add to that is what you just mentioned, which is being able to be a team player, to truly put the uh, the well-being and the success of the team over your individual success. And that is the... That is, I think, the quality that is probably most hard to detect in people, um, but also maybe the most important one, because lots of people have very good credentials, right? But who is the person you're going to want next to you? Who's the person you're going to trust with your family, with your life, uh, with with the mission, uh, so that you can trust them when you make your mistake, uh, when you make mistakes, they're going to be there to, to help you and not going to ridicule you, but will stick by you and try to get through it. And so... Um, that is, that is really important. And that trust is a trust between the crew members, but also the trust between technology and the people who help get you ready. And you talked about data. We used to have this saying, you trust your equipment, you know, and I think that came, you have to build the trust in your equipment, whether it's your spacesuit, uh, your parachute, your spaceship, but it's also now trusting the data. And that comes in a lot in the flying game 
where you realize that sometimes you're in a cloud, you can't see well, but you're trusting your instruments. You trust the data that's coming into you, whether you're flying an approach with GPS, you trust that technology. And you build up that trust over time. But you have to trust the data, you have to trust each other, um, and and trust your, your equipment. And uh, and that allows you to get through. And the the feeling you have for the people next to you is that you're really just, you're going to cover each other. That cornerstone of good teamwork, right? Um, I wanted to actually ask you a little bit about uh, failure. Um, you know, in analytics, in development, it's now very trendy to say fail fast. It's very, you know, and, and there's lots of applications and good use for that. And agile methodologies come along that basically say we want to make really small mistakes so that we don't make really big mistakes. And it seems that it might even be hard to make a small mistake in space. Right? You, you, you can't, you can't really fail fast and and oops. <laughs> um, so, so what, what is the, what is the thought process there in terms of trying to fail fast or trying to make the mistakes in a safe place? How, how do you go about that? Uh, this is, there's a, there's a lot there. I think Joe, um, the, uh, the, the, what we want to do is we want to fail on the ground so we don't fail in space. Um, fail down here so we don't fail up there. So when we, uh, when we do our training, uh, we are thrown just about every anomaly that can, you can imagine. Some are, uh, experienced as you're training, whether it's a spacewalk or in your, in your flying the vehicle or whatever system you're working on or working the robot arm, you'll make mistakes in training and you'll, and then we'll say, okay, what do we, let's not let that happen. Let's, here's a solution. And then you'll imagine, well, what happens if this happens or that happens? And you'll try to have as many backup plans as you can. And you train on the ground to do that with your team. So when you do the team, meaning not just your astronaut team, but also your ground control teams. The other thing that about making mistakes that I want to add here, Joe, just quickly, is that there's something I learned in my training. I learned it actually from a Marine pilot named C.J. Sterkow. And C.J. said to me in one of the sims, he said, we make it. You know, we made, I made a mistake, or someone made a mistake in the sim, which happens. All you are going to make mistakes, particularly when you do it. As you say, you can do things, whatever you want to call it, fail fast or whatever. But you're going to make a mistake. Some are going to be little and embarrassing, or some are going to be like really bad. Um, you need to fess up, right? You don't keep those things a secret, but you need to let it pass. And uh, we called it thirty seconds of regret. Thirty seconds of regret is something that I, 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 I when I made my mistakes, that's what I tried to remember. I'm going to, okay, I was really dumb. That was stupid. I got to leave it behind me and move on. So you got your 30 seconds of regret, then focus and move on. So to say that you're an astronaut and a professor isn't quite broad enough for your very diverse background. You've written a book called Spaceman. You've made television appearances. You're on the Big Bang Theory, as many people would uh, would recognize that face of yours. Um, you're you're in talks to do some more things in the uh, in the entertainment field right now. So so what's next for you? As you said, I'm a I'm an author. I do a lot of speaking. I do some TV. I think what my role has has come into right now, Joe, is uh, is being a communicator, an educator uh, about space travel. The classes I teach at Columbia have to do with uh, the space program and the lessons I learned. Some of the ones we've talked about today. I try to work those into my lectures to share with the students and in my writing and in my television and all my appearances. It all comes down to that is uh, communicating uh, what's going on in the space program. I still, to me, it, it just is the most inspirational thing I was ever uh, involved with. Uh, I was inspired to become an astronaut, as we said, as a young boy. 
And I like telling the story, not just of the, the technical part of it, of what we've achieved in space and what we're looking forward to in the future. There's a lot of exciting things coming down the, the, uh, the, the horizon here, going back to the moon. I communicate and try to educate people. That's fantastic. What advice could you give someone? There's somebody right now listening who is just like you, six years old, watching the moon landing. What advice could you give to someone like that who wants to be in the space program in the future? Um, I, I think that uh, there, the possibilities, we can't even imagine what they're going to be like. When I was a little boy at six years old, if I would have looked at what was going on with Neil Armstrong and said, uh, I want to be, I, I did say that, I want to be one of those guys. Well, I would have had to have been, first of all, I'd have to be a lot shorter because I'm six foot three and the height <laughs> limit back then was five foot 11. So that would have undermined, I couldn't have done that. And also I've had to be a, a military test pilot if I looked at what the original astronauts were and that wasn't in the cards for me either. So uh, I would have never even imagined that the space shuttle program would have opened it up to someone at my height and the first women were selected and a lot of scientists and engineers. And so it really opened up the gate. So I think that the gate will continue to open. So even though you might say, well, I don't know how we can do those things, just, just you know, it's going to get wider and wider. I think there's going to be more and more opportunities, particularly with these private companies. So that's one thing to keep in mind, that I think there's going to be more opportunity. But I think the most important thing I could tell anybody, Joe, is that there's a difference between something being impossible and something being unlikely. And I think that's a very data-driven um, way to look at it, uh, the way I looked at it. And there were times where I thought that my, the chances of me becoming an astronaut were impossible. But as long as you try, there's always that chance. Fantastic. So how can our listeners find more, uh, more Mike Massimino? Uh, well, I have a, a website, uh, uh, MikeMassimino.com. Um, I'm still active on Twitter uh, from that first tweet. Uh, it's uh, at Astro underscore Mike. Instagram, uh, been uh, been active there, not as long, just the last couple of years, but that's been growing, and I'm uh, Astro Mike Massimino there. Um, I have Facebook, Mike Massimino. Uh, so all those places are where you can uh, where you can find me. Social media darling. There you go, and on, on this podcast <laughs> now, too. We can throw that one in. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mike, today. It's been a real pleasure. Joe, the pleasure's been mine, and I really appreciate the questions and taking the time and and uh, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, uh, it's just a, an interesting way to look at things, of how important data is in our life. And I think not just in our jobs, but also in our lives in general, of, of looking at of how we can do, do things. And the data shows us different a lot of times. A lot of times that's good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Thanks, Mike, for teaching us something about overcoming obstacles, about not giving up after a few failures, about getting up after our 30 seconds of regret, and about persevering and knowing the difference between impossible and possible. <laughs>